thank you, Pastor Mark, and thank you, Church. Happy New Year to all of you. Um, it's good to be back. Some of you know that our family took a, a short trip to the East Coast. We just got back on Friday, and thankful for your prayers. Uh, the Lord protected us from snow, and um, more than that, we're thankful to be back uh, to start off this new year together with you all as a church family. Uh, one of the highlights of the trip for me, um, as we flew into D.C., um, drove up to New York and also to Boston, uh, was to visit a town called Northampton in Massachusetts. It's about an hour and a half west of Boston. It's now home to a prestigious college for women. But it is where David Brainerd is buried. And if you go to my next slide, uh, we had a chance to visit his gravesite at Bridges Street Cemetery. It's also where the church that Jonathan Edwards pastored once stood. And it's since been replaced by another building that you can see up here on the screen. Now, some of you may have heard of David Brainerd and his diary. He died in 1747 at the age of 29 of tuberculosis. And his gravestone simply says, a faithful and laborious missionary to the Stockbridge, Delaware, and Susquehanna tribes of Indians. But in truth, Brainerd's life inspired more people into Christian service than perhaps any other man that ever lived. As a missionary traveling on horseback in those days, he struggled with loneliness and weakness. He suffered from constant sickness and frequent rejection. Yet he persevered until the very end. Powerful testimony to the fact that our God uses the weak and the frail to accomplish great things for his kingdom. Jonathan Edwards is probably a more familiar name to us. He's regarded as one of church history's preeminent theologians and preachers, but he suffered no less in ministry. As the pastor of the church in Northampton, he was fired in July of 1750 by a congregational vote in which only 10% of church members voted to keep Edwards as their pastor. Not a great vote of confidence. And it was largely over a controversy concerning communion. Motivated by a desire to protect the purity of the church, Edwards rightly believed from Scripture that only those who profess Christ should be admitted to the Lord's table, which went against the culture and the traditions of his days. In the end, Edwards was expelled from his church for his faithfulness to the word of God. While Brainerd and Edwards serve as examples to us, they are not the exception, but the rule. Most of us are not pastors or missionaries, but to think that these rules don't apply to us reveals an ignorance of God's word. For if you are truly a child of God, the moment you are saved, he has called you to a gospel ministry, to reflect and represent him wherever you go. In Christ, he has supplied us with everything you need to be faithful to his gospel calling. And if you are being faithful, you will encounter affliction 
resistance, rejection, and opposition. There's a cross to bear and a cost to pay. And as the Apostle Paul puts it, we will share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Certainly there will be encouragements and joys, victories and blessings this next year. But there will also be no shortage of struggles, difficulties, trials, and afflictions. In fact, in John chapter 15, Jesus reminded his disciples on this way to the cross, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So then, as a church seeking to be faithful and pleasing to Christ, called to be a light for the gospel in this dark world, where do we find hope and confidence to persevere in ministry in 2024 and beyond? As we begin this new year, I trust that the passage that we'll be looking at this morning will be an encouragement to all of us as it was written to a local congregation that was facing affliction in gospel ministry. It was written by an apostle who was very familiar with affliction, and it was inspired by a God who not only ordains affliction for his glory and for our good, but also provides us in Christ with everything we need to persevere, to endure, and to be faithful to him until the end. So go ahead and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and what we're going to do is we'll read verses 1 through 18 together. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We've refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, 
I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting our way, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As you look not to the things that are, un- that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This morning we will consider from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, four convictions we must embrace in order to persevere in gospel ministry. Four convictions we must embrace in order to persevere in gospel ministry. If I can have my next slide. The Apostle Paul begins with a right perspective of gospel ministry. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Let me ask, how do you view the gospel ministry to which you have been called? Whether that's serving on our security or setup team, praise or AV, nursery or refreshments ministry. Is it a duty, a responsibility, or obligation? Something you know you ought to do? Something you signed up for because no one else did? Or because you feel experienced or adequate for it? How do you respond when ministry gets hard? You're asked to do something you don't particularly like or are gifted at. Someone steps on your toes. No one else signs up. Others drop out, push back, or are offended by you. Do you get easily frustrated or annoyed? Do you feel like giving up? And oftentimes, how we view our ministry is revealed when it does not go our way or according to our own expectations. The Apostle Paul understood his calling to proclaim the gospel as a stewardship entrusted to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 through 17, he explains that necessity was laid upon him to carry out the gospel ministry. He goes on to write, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will... I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Paul was acutely aware of his relationship and responsibility as an apostle and a bondservant of Christ. He understood whom he belonged to and whom he served. And he longed to hear his master say, well done, good and faithful servant. But at the same time, He never lost sight of this fact, that at the end of the day, ministry is a mercy and an undeserved privilege. Listen to Paul's own words in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 16. He writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, 
because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It was this deeply rooted perspective of Paul that his calling to gospel ministry was a totally undeserved expression of God's rich mercy toward him that kept him faithful to the end. Even when things got difficult and he was no stranger to afflictions, hardships, beatings, and imprisonments, he did not give up, wave the white flag, or throw in the towel. What kept him going was the conviction that this gospel ministry to which he had been called and commissioned was solely by the mercy of God. And this is true of every one of us who is called to serve Christ in ministry. It's not a privilege that we have earned. It's not based on our ability, our skill, or strength. We are not discipleship group leaders or elders because we are somehow more righteous or more worthy than others. It is pure mercy. And it comes to us from the Father of mercies whose mercy toward us abounds richly. Therefore, verse 1, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And if we go back to the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, the apostle describes for us this ministry that he had received by divine mercy. This ministry of the new covenant, covenant promised by God in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and fulfilled in Christ was superior in every way to the one that had come before. For verse 6, it is of the Spirit which gives life, whereas the letter kills and the law condemns. Not only that, compared to what Moses had experienced upon receiving the law, the ministry of the new covenant far exceeded and surpassed it in glory. Unlike the glory of the old covenant, the glory of the gospel is unfading. It is permanent, according to verses 7 through 11. And for that reason, verse 12, Paul writes, we have such a hope and are very bold. A confidence that comes through beholding Christ and his glory. For through Christ, the veil has been lifted and removed. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In the end, this ministry of the new covenant is superior because of its promise and power to transform us into the image and glory of Christ. Nothing else compares or comes close. Putting it all together, the gospel ministry to which each of us has been called is a mercy, 
not only because of how wretched and how sinful we are, but also because of how glorious and hopeful, how life-giving and how life-transforming this ministry is that we have received. So brothers and sisters, is this how we view our gospel ministry? That none of it we deserve and that all of it comes to us by way of mercy. Of all men, the Apostle Paul knew this to be true, having experienced firsthand the transforming power of the gospel in his own life. As we come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says in verse 2, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. What gave the Apostle Paul boldness and confidence in the midst of affliction was seeing the ministry as a mercy, especially as he observed its impact upon his own life. Through the power of the gospel, he had renounced his former ways as a Pharisee and persecutor of the church and rejected them as disgraceful and underhanded. Even while there were many false teachers who had crept into the Corinthian church, these so-called super-apostles, whom the Apostle Paul described as peddlers of God's word and who resorted to taking cheap shots at the Apostle, he refused to play the same game. Deceitful practices, and especially tampering with God's word, was not an option for one who had been transformed by the gospel, of which he was now a minister. Instead, he writes, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Rather than putting confidence in the flesh as he once did, having, coming, having come under the authority and power of the gospel, he's now able to present himself as above reproach before the conscience of others and as one approved in the sight of God as he rightly handles the word of truth. And church, I hope this is as much an encouragement to you as it is to me. In gospel ministry, there will always be difficulty and opposition. As much as we may try, we cannot avoid them. But there is still greater encouragement in seeing his mercy abound toward us. In the ways that the gospel has personally impacted our lives and continues to influence us to this day so that as we fully embrace and anchor ourselves in a right perspective of gospel ministry, we will persevere until the end. So that is our first point for this morning. But secondly, not only must you and I hold to a right view of gospel ministry, we must also be resolved in our conviction over the necessity of gospel proclamation. Verses 3 to 4 tells us that this conviction is born out of an understanding concerning the source and nature of gospel opposition. He writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is seen, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
Here is the true reason, the divine explanation for the rejection and resistance we encounter in gospel ministry. It's not for a lack of clarity or understanding, appreciation or persuasion. It's not due to a cognitive deficiency, an emotional dysfunction, a physical disability or psychological disorder. Simply stated, spiritual blindness. And this blindness renders one incapable of seeing the beauty, the wonder, and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, they could be blinded by their own self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, or self-esteem, by skepticism, fear of man, even religiosity. And regardless of the sin or the circumstance, Satan is the one who is ultimately behind it to darken the eyes of unbelievers. And if you are not a Christian today, this is your spiritual reality. And due to your total corruption and Satan's deception, you are unable to see Christ and the glory of his gospel. This doesn't mean that you are an innocent victim, for God holds you fully responsible for the sins that you have committed against him, which have blinded you from seeing his truth. And just as putting on a pair of glasses or going through eye surgery will not restore sight to someone who is physically blind, your only hope, just as is ours, is to call upon the one who can give you new spiritual eyes to see through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, if you have been attending our church for some time, you're probably familiar with this truth. We're well taught from God's word. And passages like Ephesians chapter 6 remind us that as believers, we are in a state of constant warfare against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this enemy is no slouch. Yet how often do we forget this in gospel ministry? Perhaps as some of you spent the Christmas holiday with family and had an opportunity to share the gospel, you were met with apathy, with rejection, or even hostility. Were you surprised? Were you discouraged? And we all know someone like this where we pour out our heart to them. We tell them how God loved us by giving us his only son, how Christ died for us while we were still sinners, and how he was buried, and how he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have the free gift of eternal life. Only to have that person walk away unimpressed and unconverted. Some might even believe in a historical Jesus, one who was a prophet or a good teacher. They might even profess faith in their own version of Jesus, but they're completely blind to Christ has revealed himself to be in God's word. Moreover, there are many who are wise by the standards of the world, many who are powerful and of noble birth, yet they are not able to accept or understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Others may possess a knowledge of the Scripture, a Christian worldview, and orthodox beliefs, and still lack spiritual perception. They are able to explain the doctrine of sin and salvation, talk about heaven and hell, and defend justification by faith. They see, but do not perceive. They hear, but do not understand. 
for the God of this world has blinded their minds. And sadly, we encounter this reality in the church, and not just in counseling or discipline cases. This too should come as no surprise when we read the gospel accounts of Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders of his days. And at Shepherd's Conference last year, Dr. Nathan Buesnitz preached the message from John chapter 9, where Jesus heals a man blind from birth to show us how spiritual blindness can take various forms. Yet at its core is an unbelief that keeps people from seeing Christ, even when he's standing right in front of them. And just like with the Pharisees and the scribes, the level of spiritual blindness and resistance to the gospel can often be greatest amongst those who have sat in these pews for years. And that should serve as a warning to all of us, but especially to those who are in positions of spiritual leadership in the home and in the church. But the glory of the gospel is that while we were spiritually blind and dead in our sins, God made us alive by opening our eyes to the truth so that those who do not see may see and embrace Christ in saving faith. And having our eyes opened by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now call those who remain in spiritual blindness to look to Jesus for salvation. And this was the Apostle Paul's personal testimony as he was converted to Christ on the road to Damascus. And if you recall from Acts chapter 9, Paul, who was Saul back then, was still breathing threats and murder against Christians as a persecutor of the church when he encountered the resurrected Christ. And physically blinded by a bright light from heaven so that he was without sight for three days, he who was spiritually blind was made to see for the very first time in his life through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, his life would never be the same again as the Lord called him to gospel ministry, one that would even entail suffering for the sake of his name. But that is not just the testimony of the apostle. It is our testimony as well, assuming that Christ is our common confession. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, has the light of the gospel shown in our hearts so that we who were once blind can now see? Have we been transformed by its power? Do we consider the gospel ministry to which we have been called a privilege and a mercy? If so, that we must consider ourselves as bondservants of others for Christ's sake. Christ now calls us to love and serve others with the gospel in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work and school and in this world. And when we face rejection and opposition, even persecution from those whom we might consider to be closest to us, we must not be discouraged or lose heart. We must not change our tactics or strategy or offer another solution. 
thinking that somehow the gospel has failed. Instead, as we commend ourselves to others, we must faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. The Lordship of Christ must be at the forefront of what we proclaim, but also what we live out before others in our gospel ministry. And we must do so, putting our full confidence not in ourselves, but in the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this leads us to our third point. Not only must we have a right perspective of gospel ministry, and a rooted confidence in the necessity of gospel proclamation. Thirdly, we must have a reliant faith in the gospel's sufficient and surpassing power. As we come to our third point for this morning, we see that the same gospel that saves us from our sins, that we now must necessarily proclaim to those who are spiritually blind, is sufficient for the ministry to which we have been called by his mercy. Verse seven, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I remember taking an art elective back in junior high, and during one of the weeks we made pottery out of clay. We spent several class periods molding the clay into bowls, vases, pots, or cups. And after heating them in an oven to harden and dry and giving them a chance to cool down, I was pretty excited to see the final product. But in the end, it looked to me like, well, molded clay. Granted, my expectations were probably too high, but there was really nothing fancy or impressive about them. And as I quickly learned, they were also prone to cracking and breaking. In the same way, as believers, there's nothing special or spectacular about us. Paul here describes our physical lives, our mortal bodies, as jars of clay or earthen vessels, composed of the most basic material. We are fragile, we are frail, and easily replaceable. In and of ourselves, we hold no intrinsic value. On top of that, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, we are foolish, weak, low, and despised in the eyes of the world. While all those things are true of us, you and I are also chosen by God. And we carry within each of us this incredible and extraordinary treasure which is the new covenant gospel of glory. And this should utterly astound us, that we not only have this ministry by the mercy of God, we also have this treasure in jars of clay. Apart from divine design, none of this makes any sense. Which one of us would ever store a priceless treasure in a clay jar? 
Even my four-year-old son knows that it belongs in a treasure chest, if not in a safe. But to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that the surpassing power that is at work within us is not ours, but his, God planned it this way. Certainly he was under no obligation to choose us or to use us. Had he wanted, he could have placed this treasure in something much more durable or valuable. But in his infinite wisdom and matchless mercy, God set apart earthen vessels, weak, unworthy, and inadequate as we are for his ministry. And while none of us are sufficient in ourselves, according to the promise of the gospel, it is God who makes us sufficient to be ministers of this new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. As we begin a new year of gospel ministry, how you and I needed to be reminded of this truth, not only when things run smoothly, but especially when challenges, adversity, and affliction come our way. We are weak. We are inadequate. We stand no chance against the schemes of the devil. Were it dependent on us in any way, we would all crumble under pressure and duress. But as Paul would explain in the opening chapter of his letter, this is precisely what affliction is intended to do, to drive us to our knees and before his throne of grace, in his own words, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If you recall, Paul was no stranger to suffering in gospel ministry, Referring to the affliction that he and Timothy had experienced in Asia, he writes in chapter 1, verse 8, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he describes being given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass or torment him. Most likely he was talking about someone in ministry who made his life difficult, such as the false teachers mentioned in the previous chapter who attacked his character and sought to undermine his authority. Whatever the affliction was, it was neither pleasant nor temporary. He even attributed it to the work of Satan. Yet in the end, what was meant for evil, God used for good to humble the great apostle, and to grow his dependence on the power of the gospel. And listen to what he writes. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's one thing to see the gospel as sufficient for our lives and ministry. That we are not lacking or wanting in any way, but have been given everything that we need for life and godliness. It's a whole other thing to recognize its surpassing power, that he is able to do in and through us far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. And through the process, the Apostle Paul learned not just to be content with insults, hardships, 
persecutions and calamities, to rest in the sufficiency of the gospel. He also learned through affliction to boast in his weaknesses so that the surpassing power of Christ rested upon him. In the same way as the Apostle Paul, we are made to realize the gospel sufficient and surpassing power through the affliction that God sovereignly brings into our lives. And we want, when we come to verses 10 and 11, we begin to see his redemptive purpose for the adversity that we are called to endure in his strength. And he repeats it twice for emphasis, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested or put on display in our mortal bodies. Brothers and sisters, our labor and suffering in the Lord are never in vain. While we are nothing more than jars of clay, we are sustained and strengthened by divine grace, so that as we persevere in ministry, proclaiming Jesus as Lord and commending ourselves to everyone's conscience, others might see Christ in us. He is the true treasure. So then, as you consider the gospel ministry to which you have been called, where do you put your faith? Do you depend on your own wisdom, your strength, or your experience? Do you boast in your natural giftedness or self-sufficiency? What do others see in your life and ministry? Is it the life of Jesus Christ, his lordship, his sufficiency, his supremacy? As you pray for yourselves, you can be praying for me to grow in faith through our affliction, that we would see the gospel as sufficient for all our needs and surpassing in all its power, and that together as co-laborers in the gospel, we would serve and minister in our weakness rather than in our own strength, wisdom, or self-sufficiency, so that we might affirm with the Apostle Paul, for when we are weak, then we are strong. This takes us to our fourth and final point for this morning. Endurance in gospel ministry demands more than a right perspective of gospel ministry, a rooted confidence in the necessity of gospel proclamation, a reliant faith in the gospel sufficient and surpassing power. It also requires a renewed hope in the promise of gospel glory. As we arrive at the last portion of our passage, the Apostle Paul moves from the past to the present to the future. From the ministry that we've received by divine mercy at the point of our salvation to his all-sufficient and surpassing power that we depend upon day to day to what we are to set our hope upon as we persevere in gospel ministry. Verse 14, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This is our ultimate prize and our hope, our great confidence and expectation, that through our future bodily resurrection, we will be ushered into eternal glory with Christ. This is what we were originally created for, what we were redeemed for, and what we are destined for, to be in the presence of our Lord and King, to enjoy perfect fellowship with him for all eternity, and to worship around his throne together with all the saints. And as Christ died and rose again to forgive us of our sins, justify us by faith, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
As believers, this ultimate hope is an essential conviction that we must hold to in order to persevere in gospel ministry. And just as our past justification and our future glorification serve as twin motivations for our present sanctification, to press on toward maturity, as Kevin taught us from Philippians 3 last Sunday, they are also what drives and spurs us on in gospel ministry. And when we lose sight of our justification or our glorification, when either piece is missing from our perspective, it's like flying a plane on one engine. We're still able to fly and eventually get to our destination, but we lacked thrust or force in gospel ministry. And thus, the Apostle Paul reminds us of what we are to look to and long for, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, namely, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And to that end, affliction in God's providence serves to prepare us for the life to come as our inner self is being renewed day by day through our, though our outer self is wasting away. Brothers and sisters, is that your hope and your confident expectation? In a few moments, Pastor Mark will come to lead us in the Lord's table. Let me close by pointing us to Christ, who in his gospel ministry toward us endured the greatest of afflictions as he borne our griefs and carried our sorrows all the way to the cross. Not only did he bear such hostilities against himself from sinners, but as a lamb led to the slaughter, he was smitten by God, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And what sustained him to the end, through a life and ministry full of suffering and sacrifice that culminated with his crucifixion, was the same convictions that we are called to embrace in our gospel ministry. You see, our Savior not only had a right perspective of his ministry, but also an unwavering confidence in its necessity, such that he was willing to enter our dark world and do what was required of him to secure our eternal salvation. As the incarnate word of God, he experienced our human weakness. Yet he was strengthened every step of the way by a sufficient and surpassing power from above. And in the end, he was motivated not by selfish ambition or any personal benefit, but by a love for his father and a love for sinners so that through our union with him, we might have the hope of eternal glory. And this is our Savior, the one whom we are called to remember and follow, the one we must look to in order to endure to the end. So as we begin this new year together as a church, let us remember Jesus Christ and his ministry toward us. And as we do, let us embrace a right perspective of gospel ministry, growing in our confidence in the necessity of gospel proclamation, putting our faith in the sufficient and surpassing power of the gospel, while fixing our hope in the promise of gospel glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that it would be an encouragement for us as we begin this new year. I pray for my brothers and sisters. We pray for our church family. Wherever we are today in our walks with you, Lord, would you sustain us? Would you strengthen us for the next leg of the journey? For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.